Last week, we looked at the first two verses of Leviticus and saw that God speaks. And if God speaks, of course, we want to listen. And so we begin this morning by looking at the first of many different sacrifices which are described by Moses here in the book of Leviticus. And, um, of course, we don't want to leave what what Moses tells us here in the pages of Leviticus. We want to see where they're pointing us. And they're pointing us to Jesus. And so we want to try to bring all of this together this morning. Let me begin with verse 3 and read down through the end of the chapter. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire. A smooth, a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall range them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But... If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. (laughs) 
I am, um, as maybe most men, a single task kind of person. And if I get distracted, bad things can happen. Years ago, we were hosting a missionary and his family at our home. And he and I were out in the backyard, and I was supposed to be grilling our dinner. And we got involved in a theological conversation. This doesn't ever turn out well. I forgot entirely that I was supposed to be grilling. We got so consumed in our conversation. And what was there on the grill could rightfully be described as a burnt off. That's an indication of the way in which English has been influenced by the language of the Bible. Of course, the actual burnt offering was no joke. It's what we've just read about. It was a sacrifice in which that animal being offered was wholly consumed by fire. In 2001, there was an epidemic of foot and mouth. Well, I will remind you why. We do this because all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We do this because what we find here in Leviticus is a shadow which points us to something greater. A greater reality which is found in Jesus. And so there is profit for us here. The Lord required the Israelite worshiper to bring a proper gift in the form of a sacrifice. That's one thing that we're going to see here. Another thing we're going to see is that that proper gift is to be brought to a proper place. Can't be done just anywhere. And then we're also going to see that this proper gift, when brought to a proper place, is to be offered in a proper way. There is a procedure to be carried out. We're going to discover that the demands made on the ancient Hebrews were perfectly performed on our behalf through Jesus Christ, who himself was the proper gift and the proper place and fulfilled the proper procedure, the proper presentation of the sacrifice, which then results in the forgiveness of sin. By his perfect obedience, we as Christians can worship with the perfect assurance that our worship is accepted by the Father. So, first thing we want to see in regard to this burnt offering is that which we are told about here in each of these sections of chapter 1, that there is a proper gift to be offered. Now, you'll note 
that as we read through Leviticus chapter 1, we were were reading about different animals which could be sacrificed. And yet, all of those sacrifices are the same sacrifice. I wonder what kind of gift giver you are. My wife is a wonderful gift giver. She's got closets full of things. She just brings things home because one day we're going to find the perfect person to give this gift to. She's, it, it, it's really quite an amazing thing. She has a knack for knowing just the proper gift to give on any occasion. I, on the other hand, I am the worst gift giver to ever walk the face of the earth. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I don't want to give good gifts. It's just that when it comes to gifts, I have no imagination and very little taste. I rarely know the answer to the question, what is the proper gift? When it comes to the burnt offering, we're talking about a gift that is being offered, and so we must ask, what is the proper gift? The gift that worshipers offer the Lord requires that we ask this question. What is the proper gift? What does the Lord require? What is the acceptable gift? The Israelite worshiper, in this case, had a great advantage over me. He had no doubt as to what the proper gift was because the Lord had revealed it to him. Wouldn't that make it so much easier? <laughs> Just tell everybody, you know, this is, this, is what, this is the gift you should give to me. For the burnt offering, the proper gift could only come from two types of offerings. An animal from the livestock or a bird. Within the first option of domesticated animals, the worshiper could select either a bull or a male sheep or a male goat. But there was also a selection of birds permitted, turtle doves or pigeons, you see that in verse 14. And this variety conveys that God always requires a sacrifice of value from the worshiper, but that the economic value varied based on the ability of the worshiper to give. Why didn't the Lord just say, all right, everybody's got to give me a bull? Because not everybody had a bull. And not everybody could afford to buy a bull to offer to the Lord. In a word, receives them as if they were the same. Because they're both coming out of sacrifice. What was required, no matter the kind of animal, was the worshiper's heartfelt devotion. Giving that is commensurate with the person's economic status is not just an Old Testament principle, it's a New Testament principle as well. We are told to give... According to what the
Lord would have us give. We're told to give not a certain dollar amount. We come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. Paul's talking about this, this issue. He says, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, Paul talks a lot about giving in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And for Paul, he says, our giving is based on the heart, not the amount. If the heart is right, you're going to give sacrificially. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. As he may prosper. So giving is not at a flat rate. I was with my father-in-law yesterday. We were having great discussions all day long. You know, we just get into these Areas that I don't normally get involved in, but you know he's into you know banking theory and things that just blow my mind because he's just so much smarter than I am. <laughs> we were talking about you know tax systems and tax rates. Oh, you know, flat tax. That, that, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, just charge everybody the same amount. Scripture says that our giving is to be according to how God has prospered us. Mm -hmm. Each one, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, neither grudgingly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful so God does not demand that we give what we do not have, but he does command that we give what we do have. Jesus commended a widow for only giving two of the smallest coins available in the day because she gave all that she had. So, let's ask the question. Can the Lord's church succeed without my gift? And the answer is yes. Because God is the one who provides for his church. To ask if the Lord's church can su succeed without my gift, however, is to ask the wrong question. The better question to ask ourselves is, can I succeed in faithful Christian living without giving? And the answer to that is a resounding no. The remedy for stinginess and selfishness and greed is found in the giving of all of our possessions to the Lord. 
having done that, we no longer own them, and they no longer own us. We are free from our possessions. They are the Lord's to do with as he wishes, just as we are the Lord's to do with as he wishes. When we have done that, when that's our attitude toward our possessions, then the gifts and offerings which we present to him are not counted as loss because they're his in the first place. So the proper gift is the costly gift. But the proper gift, we're also told, is the perfect gift. Given who the Lord is, it is fitting that we give him our best. That the animal had to be unblemished, spoke of the worth, of the quality of it. Structurally, it consisted of two major parts. There was a courtyard, and then there was a sacred tent that sat inside. The altar was located near the entrance to the courtyard. The courtyard then faced east, as did the sacred tent, which contained the Holy of Holies. And it was situated at the back of the courtyard. So upon entry into the courtyard, the worshiper saw the altar and could see in the background behind the altar, the sacred tent, where was the Holy of Holies. And the symbolic message was plain. To approach God, who is there in the Holy of Holies, the Israelite first had to make a sacrifice at the altar. That's the intent in the design and the construction of the tabernacle which God had commanded the people. Now theologically, the tent of meeting was central to Israel's life because it served as the primary presence of uh, primary symbol of God's presence among his gathered people. Inside that sacred tent we mentioned, there were two rooms. The front room was known as the holy place where authorized priests would function, and the back room was the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The sacrifice could not be made at just any place since the offering must be presented where the Lord was present among his people. The Israelite was permitted to enter into the courtyard for the purpose of presenting this gift to the Lord, but he could not venture any further. Only priests could go into the sacred tent. And only the high priest could venture into the second room of the tent, the most holy place. The Lord God of Israel alone was the recipient of these gifts then. The tent of meeting was sacred because of God's presence there, for he was and is the only true. God. The sight of the altar, just put yourself in the place of an Israelite at this point, the sight of the altar would have produced conflicting emotions in the worship. 
The altar signaled sorrow by virtue of its identity as a place of death. Yet the altar is also a place of great joy. The psalmist understood the altar as a place of meeting with God who was perpetual joy. And Isaiah depicted the future day when all nations would come in joy and receive acceptance at the altar of the Lord. Like the cross of Jesus Christ, the altar had the dual effects of repelling and attracting the worshiper. When we come to the Lord's table, isn't this what we're experiencing? We see in the Lord's table Christ and his shed blood. We see his sacrifice and we mourn. And yet, in that sacrifice, we also experience joy because we know that it is that sacrifice which accomplishes our redemption. The cross of our Lord was a testimony to the sorrow produced by our sin and the undeserved suffering that Jesus endured for our crimes. And yet, it is also a sign of the joyful victory that Jesus has achieved on our behalf by paying for our sins and liberating us from guilt and death. And so God instructed the Israelites regarding the burnt offerings. He told them about the proper gift to be offered and the proper place of the offering. But he also tells them of the proper method of presentation. If the gifts were to be accepted, they must be offered in the proper way. Any departure from the prescribed course of action would result in the rejection of the offering. The Lord required strict observance to show the importance of approaching him for the purpose of worship and for the forgiveness of sin. By fulfilling the proper presentation of the offering, the Israelite acknowledged the ruling presence of God. He recognizes that God is on the throne. He recognizes that God has the right and the authority and the power to determine how he will be approached. The primary support to Paul in prison, he characterized their sacrifice mm -hmm. with the same language used of our Lord's death. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. As Christians, we too offer ourselves when we present our gifts to the Lord as an act of worship, the Bible views such gifts as an indication of commitment to the Savior. Giving is not incidental to Christian living, but a core value of the life of a devoted disciple of Christ. But we dare not come away from this passage focusing on the fact that, well, Ancient Israel, they gave animals and sacrifice. You know, we write a check. The correlation between what we see in Leviticus 1 and the New Covenant, it meets in Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus is the priest. And Jesus is the worshiper. 
Jesus is everything that you find here in Leviticus 1. And what Jesus did, he did for us. He is the sacrifice upon which we place our hand in identification with him. And he is the priest which places the parts of the sacrifice on the altar. Jesus is the one who identifies himself with us as our substitute. This is what we see. This is what we understand. Our salvation is viewed by us as something clean. We hear a message. The Spirit of God works within us. We believe the message. Praise God. We're saved. There's no slitting of throats. There's no flowing of blood. I came to Christ. My mother didn't need to wash my clothes because they were covered with blood. I don't have to chop up any animal. It's very clean from that perspective. But the reality is that our salvation is based on a very bloody, messy sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it is. Who gave himself, mm -hmm. shed his blood for us. Yes. Praise God. Leviticus points us to Jesus. Yes. And will continue to do so as we continue to study this wonderful book preparing us for what was to come. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your grace seen in these sacrifices. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, once and for all given in order to reconcile us with you. Mm -hmm. Father, help us as we continue our study of Leviticus. Help us to see Jesus more and more clearly, we ask. In his name, amen. amen.